Hello and welcome to uh, Shieldcast of the Lotus Eaters episode 2. This is on the 20th of September uh, 2023. So uh, welcome back lovely subscribers before we bring in the Utahs. Um, appreciate you guys. Uh, the, the promotion's going well, so we, 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 we do a bit more of that. And um, we, we do love you existing subscribers as well. Although some of you are seriously overestimating my tech skills. It is, it is not the case that I set up some bloody voucher thing right, and tried to exclude you know, lovelies for existing subscribers. It's just I, I don't know how to do that. If I can figure out something, we'd, we'd do something in the future. But anyway, uh, love you guys. And um, should, we, should we bring in the... Oh, and I'm joined by... I'm jo yes, it's not just me. I'm joined by um, the well-dressed and fresh-faced Connor. Hello, you're right there. Yes, and and also um, uh, 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 Stelios, the, the good-looking Greek. Thank you very so, much. So um, nice to be here. Yes, yes. So I remembered you. Yes, no, no. You, you're 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 very much part. Of I, I thought Josh was <laughs> the Alan Partridge of the office, but you're giving him the run for the money. <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 yes, right. Okay, so um, first uh, first segment, um, Stelios. Um, so for my degree, I did um, a, a bit of politics and philosophy and, and economics and stuff. And, and the stuff that I remember about the philosophy is that Greek people do it. Now, you, you do our philosophy here, and you're Greek. So is, is that your primary qualification, or do, you, or do you have other qualifications on top of that? I've studied economics mm -hmm. and philosophy. Right, okay. But not as uh, politics, philosophy, and economics. I've studied them separately. Right, okay. Uh, it's not just Greek people who do it. Uh -huh. uh, Greek people do it well. Yes. Also, Anglo-Saxon people do it well, mm -hmm. and some people from the continent do it well, but not everyone. I see. Okay. Yeah. And 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 you've got um, what PhDs and I have a PhD in philosophy. Yeah. Right. Okay. So so what 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 is a philosophy? What do you mean, a philosophy or yes. philosophy in yeah, general? I mean, what, what what is it? If you well, you could say that uh, it's it's a way to systematize answers to questions that most people ask, like you know, if there is a god. If there's an afterlife, what is right or wrong? What is politically the right thing to do? Most people ask these questions, whether we are in control of our, of our destiny and have free will or not. Most people ask these questions. In philosophy, you try to create a system where you give answers that cohere with each other. Okay, so is it, is it like the cultural version of technology? It's like discovering stuff? Not necessarily. Oh, okay. Not necessarily. It mo it's most about asking questions that every human being asks uh -huh. and trying to give good answers to it. Because if you give bad answers to it, people die. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Oh, we better, better get that right then. Yes. It is imperative that we get it right. Oh, okay. Um, and it's, it's also imperative uh, for those of you who are joining us on YouTube that um, you know, rather than staying on that cultural uh, barren wasteland, um, you know, with a, with a bright red banner and the censorship. That you come and join us on the website, and to make that nice and easy for you, we've um, we've put a code up. There we go. This is Sargon because he's gone on holiday. So you now get a fifty percent discount for the next three months when you sign up to um, any tier. So come and join us um, off the uh, off the off the YouTube. Right. So philosophy. Then take take us through that. How how, do, how are we supposed to think about it? And what and what what's like a key question we could be asking ourselves at this at this juncture? Well. How to structure society? This is a philosophical oh, yeah, question. Well, to right. very yes, but this is why we need good answers. Mm. If we have bad answers, we have really bad outcomes. That's one yeah. question we should be asking. Also, another question we should be asking is why the hell can't we basically stop thinking of ourselves in mechanistic terms? 
Because in contemporary society, I think this is the main problem that in the philosophy of the last four centuries... What, what, what does that mean if you think of yourself in mechanistic terms? Well, in every age, there, there is a myth. The myth is not necessarily a lie, but it is a back, backdrop of assumptions that affect most people's thinking. And frequently, technology has to do with it. And uh, in the 17th century, there was, there was a shift from the medieval way that people view things as the world as being, let's say, a, a waiting place for the second coming, that, and all the whole world had a purpose, mm -hmm. and people had to be members of particular society that tried to uphold particular moral code until the second coming. After that, we lost completely this notion of the world as having a purpose, and uh, the whole idea is the machine. So we tend to view things in completely mechanistic terms, and this affects also how we view people. And also, people dislike this way of viewing yeah. things, but because the language is so much contaminated with mechanistic references, we cannot even formulate problems correctly, or we cannot even formulate problems in ways that make us stop thinking in mechanistic terms. Everything has become a machine. Human beings have no free will. Including the people themselves. Exactly. In the people, in the mind of most people, human beings have no free will. Everything is mechanistic. To understand how to structure societies, to understand how to structure the mechanism and how to, to make. To be it fair, I think a lot of people don't have free will. They just watch TV and are programmed. And well, they, that's they a very work. big discussion. Uh, right. I don't think that we we have enough time to have it now. Oh, but right. I think that uh, I think I, I think that we do to a very large extent. I think we do. Yeah. Well, I think that's more of autonomy. But let, let, us, let right. us keep that discussion for another time. All right, okay, okay. You, 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 you take us through it then. Yeah, so basically my series here is the symposium. If yeah. you can have a look here, we have several philosophical discussions. So ba basically we, we have close to 36 episodes. We have uh, done the, we have recorded the 37th one mm -hmm. and uh, we have several others one to, on the pipeline. He was on my university course. I like him. Yes, the Ma Machiavelli. Yes. Okay. It sounds like you had a better degree and a better education than most people do nowadays. Was it good? Well, it was all right. I mean, it was all right. Maybe in economics you had some grievances. I mean, with mainly it. At university was just something I did while I was sobering up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now let us uh, say one thing. So I think basically, if there's a purpose in the symposium, it's not just you know videos here or there. Maybe the series in which the symposium videos are done are completely chaotic, but there is an underlying order. It's like the A-team. There's always a plan. Remember this? I remember the A-team, yes. Yeah, exactly. So there's always a plan. And the plan is to have a very sober diagnosis of what the hell is going wrong and to propose realistic solutions. Now, it's purposefully anti-sensationalist. I don't try to appeal to emotion because there's too much you know, too much of that already. Emotion. Yes. Yes. I think we should think rationally. Yes. I don't know if that sounds is, controversial. Is that different from, from women or is it? Well, I mean, you could say that most people frequently think emotionally. Yes. Let, let me phrase it in this okay. way. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fine. Okay. So what we're doing basically is we have two kinds of videos, roughly. We have more, but there are two main streaks. Uh, one is ancient philosophy. And we are examining, for instance, things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, we have here the, this one. So the did, Epic... Did, 
Carl did that one, didn't he? Uh, Carl Bow and myself. Yeah. So we are examining basically one of the oldest epics in the world. And we are saying what, for instance, um, is we are explaining the trajectory of Gilgamesh's life and his conquest of wisdom. Have you read Gilgamesh, Connor? Because he's, he's like uber chad number one. Here. No, I haven't. Though I do know when this was being filmed, I think this was the first symposium you filmed in the new studio. Yes. And obviously before, a bit of behind the scenes for people. The old studio, there was just a curtain separating the writer's yes. room from the studio. So anytime someone would have to record something, the lights would have to go off and you'd have to sit in silence like it was an exam hall or something. And because there are now two studios, it frees up a lot more time to have for the premium content. And I remember Bo and Carl walking out midway through Gilgamesh, about two hours in, and we all just looked up and went, oh, did it go all right, did it? And they were like, nope, still going, just going to get a cup of tea and that. So Three and a half hours. Yeah, quite... so you you must have had a seriously rigorous discussion. And for... that's, that's an epic, that is. Yes, and uh, it was really good. I think it's the lengthiest Lotus Eaters video so far. There, there are people who have plans of having lengthier discussions, let me just say. Well, that sounds like a challenge now. Yes. I'm going to do a deep dive on Peruvian interest rates. and, and Yes. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so we are uh, examining ancient philosophy. We have all other videos as well, like, for instance, Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics, part one. We have here, yes, we're talking about basically Aristotle's ethics. We have also okay. uh, part two. We have here one video called Discovering the Logos, where I did with Bo, it's symposium number 10. It's the Logos in the Pre-Socratics, which I think is the most underappreciated symposium I've done already. because. We are trying to understand what is at the basis of Western civilization. Jordan Peterson constantly talks about the Logos, but he talks about it, it more in the context of, the, of theology and the Bible and that tradition. We are trying to go a step back and say what this notion was and what this notion meant in, in uh, ancient times. And this is really important because what we nowadays mean by reason is completely different from what... Uh, the logos is supposed to mean. Uh, we have. So, are we, are we doing it better, or the ancients doing it better? In the in that respects, in this respect, the ancients are doing it better. Okay. Yeah, because for instance, there is when we speak of reason nowadays, we just speak of instrumental reason. It's, everything is mechanistic. Is you have a purpose. This purpose is not necessarily judged as moral or immoral by reason, but all reason has to do is to discover the means to achieve that purpose. In this tradition, the Logos is much more um, evaluatively rich. It's, it is supposed to be the noble element of the soul. And it's something that it separates us from the rest of the material world and it contains a drive upwards. And this means that basically the whole Western civilization is based, at least in its uh, birth, on the idea that the material realm is not the, it does not exhaust the world. And this is one of the major differences between the ancient worldview or ancient worldviews, most of them, because there were materialists back then, and uh, now how most people view things nowadays. And let me yeah. just say one example, which may be a bit weird. It's things like, for instance, the symposium on love that I did with Connor. That was one of my favorite videos that I've done since I've joined here, genuinely. It was a really rich discussion, because a lot of the time people don't think about the definition we just see it as a process and i think and this is something that you were talking about earlier that the mechanistic understanding of how we interact with people is something that has infected zoomers unbelievably as to where and i was talking about this at an event that carlin went i went to last night at x university all zoomers act on the presupposition that all relationships are transactional and it's always about 
relative to your self-conception and how much value another person can provide to you. And at any time that they aren't providing enough value, you can just sever that relationship. It's never worded in the terms of sentiment and what specific criteria involuntarily conjure up that sentiment out of you. So we looked at it in a uh, the, the history of philosophy and looking at the definitions of love from, uh, we did Plato, Aristotle, uh, C.S. Lewis, and we even did a bit of like, modern conceptions of it. And we came to a really rich and wholesome definition by the end of it. And, and I'm really, it was my first one with you, actually. I'm really glad we had that. that yes. Chat. And also it shows how if we really um, familiarize ourselves with the language of previous eras, not because they're previous, but because they're different, we're better able to understand the differences and commonalities between worldviews. It's also a means of re-enchantment. That's, that's exactly. the really important thing. Exactly. It, it adds the yeah. rich texture to life if you understand this sort of yes. stuff. It's a very metaphysically rich conception of love in an age when most people view love as something that is basically um, neurons firing in your brain and creating you this image that you love a person, whereas in fact you have biological pressure that is doing this, is uh, leading you to be attached to someone you know, it's all this idea that there that we're radically mistaken about how we view ourselves in lives, and we need someone to come and tell tell us what is actually going on, which is very cynical. Now, I'm not a very cynical person. I am one of the uh, the officers' optimists, and uh, cynicism just doesn't bode well with me. And I think that some reenchantment is necessary and also good. And some respects. I, I can this see. This is very deep, isn't it? This is very oh, it, it was. It was fantastic. It also came around around Valentine's Day, so it was. It was topically relevant. Oh, how lovely! Yeah. Stelios does plan his content very well. I will say, because we, we've spoken before about how you're not just like planning scattershot pieces of philosophy. You're trying to create a tapestry yes. of of thought that has a kind of continuity that can help nourish the viewers and build them a new frame of reference to fortify themselves against that instrumentalist, metaphysical, very exactly. alienating worldview that exactly. we take as. as like a cultural presupposition. Exactly, yeah. And we don't only do ancient stuff. We're trying to examine what goes on right now. So right now, I think we are in the state of ecophobia. This is a symposium we did with Carl when we were talking about... Is that, is that about, oikophobia? Uh, yeah, I mean, I pronounce it ecophobia. Some people pronounce it oikophobia. It, it, you won't get Greeks modern Greeks at least to pronounce it this way, but oh. it's, it's... So this is, this is, this is disliking oiks, you know, the... The, the people you see? Well, uh, let me just say what oh. this is for for the audience. So we are discussing with Carl Roger Scruton's idea of ecophobia and also a very excellent book by Benedict Beckelt called uh, Western Self-Contempt. Uh, we, we are uh, d uh, discussing it here. So ecophobia is the idea where people have a bias against their own countries. Oh, an outgroup preference. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've only ever seen, so I've traveled around the world and I've only ever seen that in the West. I've just, I just exactly. don't see that it anywhere else. That is why we're talking about Western anti-Westernism. And we see this trend to worrying, let's say, it, it, it's, it is a worryingly large trend. Let's say there are, there are many, many, many people in Western societies who think that the only way to stand out is to just constantly blame their countries. 
This is the instinct of the decolonization movement, which is retroactively applied to countries that themselves were not colonized, were accused of being colonial, even though they upgraded the infrastructure and the morality of various countries that they occupied. And this is something I chatted to, to Doug Stokes about in a, in a recent book club on the website. And the reason, and you, you keep talking about having um, not, just, not just the importance of asserting objective truths and uh, building a heuristic for what is truth, but because it has adverse outcomes if you don't follow those. His point in his book against decolonization was, it's all well and good for us to be squabbling at home and arguing with the critical race theorists and spending time refuting them, but it's a giant distraction when we've got rising powers like the Chinese that are very happy that we're committing cultural suicide because it stops us from being prosperous. And even though they're committing demographic suicide at the same time, if we kill ourselves faster by not having enough conviction to defend our own nation, they win by default. And so stuff like this is really important to, to reconstitute the, the reason of why we should unapologetically defend our civilization. So yeah, we're, we're kind of doing the opposite, aren't we? We're trying to, on, a, on, a, on a mission to destroy it as fast as possible. Yeah, we're being gaslit into thinking that we're, it, it's not worth losing, uh, not, not, worth, not worth keeping as we're losing it. Yeah. Yes, yes, not worth maintaining. Yeah. Now, in order to understand how to give realistic solutions, as opposed to have the, let's say, illusion of giving solutions, just in order to say something that will create lots of impressions on t on on uh, Twitter, we are um, you, we are appealing to some really basic core stuff in the history of Western political thought, like politics of Aristotle, part one, part two, that we did with Harry. Also, this is a massively underappreciated uh, symposium. We're discussing about the main constitutions, the main unmixed constitutions, and what Aristotle says is the pros and cons of each. Is, is Aristotle the one who didn't write anything down? So No, that's Socrates. Oh, that was Socrates. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was Socrates, and then, then it was, which one was it? Was it then Plato? Socrates, or? Plato, and Aristotle are the ah, okay. basic trinity of ancient Greek philosophy of the I classical see. world. Yes. Okay. And we also have uh, discourses on Livy. Here we have Machia the essential Machiavelli. I like this one. Yeah. We are talking about his greatest hits. Like He's a very we, practical man, this one. Yeah, like, we do need another hero. What's justice got to do? Got to do with it. What's justice but a second-hand virtue, and also simply the best written about the Roman Republic. So just watch this, and next week we're going to have round two. Part two is completely different. It's not very philosophical. We're talking about war. Imagine you have Carl and Bo there talking about war. And, and this is a short one. This is a, this is only you know two hours and forty-eight minutes long. No, this is, I think, uh, one of the longest ones. Yeah, so basically, um, th this is a really, really, really interesting one. By all means, check it out. Now, um, this is, I think, one of the most important symposium videos because it has to do with language and linguistic and conceptual subversion. I think, basically, that this is one of the most, let's say, important videos to watch if you want to enter into the symposium uh, series. It is a it is a bit slow, but it is deliberately slow because we are talking about complex ideas, and this is about how language is being corrupted, and this is precisely what I mean when I was talking about it being anti-sensationalist. We are explaining how words words uh, function and how language functions, especially in the public sphere, and how the meanings of concepts change. And I'm talking there about a kind of woke trap that is being set for people to fall into. And this uh, can be explained in a nutshell in the following way. So speech does not occur in a vacuum. Speech is always speech between people. 
with a particular language that has that has evolved as a living organism in a particular society. And in that society, there are, let's say, terms that have symbolic power because most people attach a very positive or very negative meaning with respect to them. We have, uh, let's say, thin concepts like good and evil, right or wrong. If you say someone is evil, that, that, that has some force that if you say that they... They have a, they wear a particular kind of dress. Doesn't have, but there are also other terms like you know fascism, liberty, community, all these terms. So what I'm saying is that basically, post Cold War, we have. Uh, by the way, I did this with Bo and Josh. Uh, what we're I'm saying that after World War, uh, no, after the Cold War ended, the terms liberty and democracy have assumed a symbolic status. So what we have is a, a really militant and conceptually aggressive woke left that is trying to get its political opponents to identify as illiberal and anti-democratic. So if they do this, a lo- lots of, some people will do that on principle and they will identify themselves as such. That, that doesn't mean that they're falling into the trap. But other people fall into that trap mindlessly. Why? Because they don't examine the way that Change that meanings uh, uh, change. So, for instance, they don't understand what the concept of liberty means, yes. and what lots of traditions uh, for, uh, of uh, conceptualizing liberty are. Yes, they don't understand it, and they mindlessly or they rush to accept the way that their opponent is setting the terms of the debate. Yes, and that's a bit. That yes, why is this? I've, I've caught up at last. Yes, yeah. And why that is an issue? Because let's say you lose if you start identifying in ways that yes. the majorities, uh, th- the majority of the population thinks they are, let's say, you're symbolic. fighting on their conceptual battleground, not you. Yes, you have one side, like ah. the woke side, that is completely that they don't give, and you know what they don't give, um, a donkey's, yes, whatever about uh, democracy or liberty. No, 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 no. They try to portray themselves as being the defenders of them. Why? Because they have the other side identifying themselves in such ways. So they they constantly, we constantly see this tendency of people who say, no, we need to fight X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, presumably this this is exactly what's happening right now with this whole Russell Brand thing where one side is trying to portray themselves as the protector of women and virtue and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's just a power play. Despite already having permitted the exact kind of sexually liberative philandering that made Russell Brand's career before this. Yes. And based on the consent framework, they didn't have any kind of moral cudgel to say, actually, maybe you shouldn't be sleeping with hundreds of women and therefore yes. risking the idea that you're going to spurn some of them and that they maybe weaponize either as an accurate or a false accusation later down the line. They didn't care about those moral prohibitions until it became politically expedient, and then they can position themselves on the side of, we, we were actually always defending the, the, the sacredness of women. Well, I don't know exactly about this specific case. I don't know about the specifics of this case, but what I think is really interesting is that people who made accusations about him, they said that right now, Russell Brand is associated with uh, particular views yes, because they want to smear these views. But no one seems to be talking about the fact that it seems that when he allegedly, allegedly yes. did what he was accused of doing, he seemed to have been a leftist back then. Yes. No one talks about this. Now, yes. let's uh, talk about... I mean, uh, just, I mean, just a quick point here. It's 
Because I used to think that I could think, but actually listening to you, I'm starting to realize that there's actually this whole deep chasm of thinking, and yes. I probably need to do I need to do some philosophizing, I think, and some 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 watching of this. Yeah, thank you. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking going on here, and I'm trying to keep up as best I can. So I get excited when I get a little bit that I can. Yes, I'm 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 yes. very flattered to hear this. Good. Okay. Yes. Now, one thing: uh, patriotism. One thing, uh, people who think that patriotism is a bad word have no business running any nation and any country. So they could go we, do we something don't have anyone themselves. in charge who thinks that patriotism is a good thing. Yes, but All globalists. Okay, so they, they should go and do something with themselves. Yes. Okay, so, <laughs> so, next one surviving disagreement is um, a really interesting discussion I had with Josh. Okay. We're saying basically that disagreement is something that uh, most people did. Most respectful and civilized people did uh, courteously. So, you, for instance, you can definitely have people in the Rothbardian, in Roth, who are debating. Oh, like Rothbard. You know, uh, Murray Rothbard. Yes. Yes. With, Sound uh, chap. With, you know, classical liberals and stuff, or classical liberals and conservatives. You can have really lovely disagreements. It doesn't mean that we're going to kill each other. It is some other, interestingly, it's some other people who portray any kind of disagreement as a destruction of their delicate sentimentality who are actually against dialogue and against disagreement. So I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking that just occasionally... But, but that's like the entire power structure on the left at the moment is, is, yes. is in that. Yes, and we should expose it and talk to people. And this is what is absolutely great about the Lotus Eaters, that we are addressing uh, people who don't get this message from the legacy media. Well, not just that, it's the and and I really enjoyed this one, not because necessarily it brought a load of new knowledge outside of my framework, because obviously I understand quite a lot of what you just said yeah. there, but it's because it had the, the tone and tenor of the kind of conversations we have off air as friends. Yes. And it had the relaxed atmosphere of, of almost like uh, Tolkien and Lewis sitting in a pub in Oxford, just waxing philosophical over a drink and a, yes. and a pipe. Um, yourself and Josh had a really rich and interesting discussion that had a really nice pace. And we have those exact kind of discussions off air, which is why you are so capable to like bring the best out of all of us in your series. So Thank you very much. That's right, mate. So, um, and let's uh, talk about debates. We are, uh, we are having, for instance, also debates on the show. Here I'm debating with Thomas about modernity. Well, my position is that when your hand is in pain, you don't chop your hand. You try to extract the growth that pains you. Now, uh, saying that is go that um, you should chop the hand is a bit, uh, I, I think it goes too far. L let me yeah. say it goes too far. Another debate I had with Carl is debating classical liberalism. This is very good. Yes, when uh, this is one of the good ones. And uh, I really liked it. And to be fair, th this is what is a bit deceptive about it. Towards the end, there is surprisingly more disagreement than the title suggests. And the reason why we do this is because basically what happened is that um, I think that b both Carla and myself, we deeply care about uh, liberty and community. Mm -hmm. And there is an issue with value monism. There is an issue with the idea that there is one and only one fundamental value deep down and everything has to boil down to it. And this is particularly problematic when you try to think of how to, let's say, safeguard your values because we, unfortunately, as human beings, let's say, uh, we have the tendency to think that there is one and only one value, the one that is currently under threat. So when, for instance, right now in the West, yes, 
uh, we have communities that are under threat, there is a tendency to think that only community is the one and only value, which leads us to forget the values of liberty and the values of, let's say, within some limits, individualism. On the other hand, there were some other errors when we were thinking of, for instance, no, liberty is under threat. The only way to safeguard this is by, let's say, having a society that is focusing on freedom as opposed to community. And this is what leads society to disintegration because you need a kind of... Extreme liberalism. Yes. Yes, extreme individuality. Okay. And this is why I have this conceptions of political freedom here because uh, liberalism is an umbrella term. Like many other notions, it's an umbrella term. If we mean by liberalism the promotion and safeguard of liberty, then the question is, what do we mean by liberty? There are many, many, many answers. Here, for instance, we have Symposium 2, and I purposefully started with this. It's the first political symposium we did. We're talking about the negative, the positive, and the Republican tradition. There are many more, but I'm just introducing some complexity into it. Because when people say that I am for liberty, it's not by any means transparent what they're saying. And let me just finish with these two links. We have this on value pluralism. This is a symposium number 35 where Carl and myself are talking about this. We're trying to somehow argue for a position like, you could say, conservative liberalism, at least I do, where you try to say that you have fundamentally incommensurable values, values that deep down may be incompatible. Community and liberties, they're deep down incompatible. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't try and find ways of accommodating both in uh, your moral compass. Yes, I mean, there could be a settlement that works for both. Yeah. And final one, let me just say, because I like being optimistic, and uh, Bo and myself did some Anglo-Saxon work here. And what I mean by that is that you could say that the Anglo-Saxon temperament in philosophy is very much skeptical of generalizations because it is very much focused on empirical fact. It is completely foreign to the spirit according to which if facts contradict the theory, so worse for the facts. This, that's, uh, so what we're doing here is we are dispelling both the narrative of infinite progress and the narrative on infinite decline. And we're saying that, well, we can find tendencies that confirm both, but they are a bit low resolution and uh, history is much more contingent than that. And Ultimately, I think that it's on our hands to improve the future. I don't lots think of, that we're doing an inevitable de- decline. It's all very clever, isn't it? I, I would like to think so myself. Yeah. Marvelous stuff. Marvelous. Thank you very much, Stelios. That, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, should we also talk about economics? I mean, yep. Something, something for fun. It. Yes. Shall I give a, Shall I give a, a quick overview? The reason. Dan, why can't let, I have let us a house? Cheers before. Well, well, yes. Just, before you. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Cheers. cheers yes. Bosses. Bosses. Yeah. Bosses away, so we can have beers, and also we can have this uh, promo, which is Sargon. Sargon has gone on holiday, and um, so we are offering fifty percent off every tier um, that you sign up for for the next three months. So, so come and join us uh, before the boss comes back and realizes what we've done. But you know, you'll be in by then, so it'll be fine. Uh, right? Yes. Yeah, so, eco- economics. So, try, try. Well, I, I've got a series here. It's called um, it's called Brokenomics. Uh, where we sort of talk about economic stuff. I thought that it might be good to give a very quick summary of everything that's gone wrong. 
Like if if I could, if I will be here all week. Well, no, it's, I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll try and keep it quick. The the, the first thing because sometimes I started off with the boomers are to blame, but the boomers get upset when I say that. So the people who are to blame are the greatest generation, the people who won the war, right? You see, because what happened is because um, you know they went off and, and won the war, and and when you have a bit of a fight, you know what you want to do, it, it kind of gets the it, it it gets the ardor up, doesn't it? it gets it gets you a bit gets you a bit you know frisky. And and all obviously all the um, the greatest generation ladies they they were seeing all like soldier boy coming back so anyway they had lots and lots of babies that's that's the central problem they had the boomers and then there was lots and lots of boomers um, th- there was something else that happened after the war as well which got to do with gold I'll come back to that but anyway you get this massive generation spike now you might think okay that um, being a member of a uh, small generation is better than being part of a large generation less competition for jobs all that kind of stuff. Funnily enough, it's not. It doesn't actually work that way. It, it's it's if you're if you're part of a large generation, you kind of mould the society to you a bit like a, a a bit like a snake eating gazelle or something as you sort of pass through the machine, right? So so that started to happen. Now the other thing that I wanted to mention about the gold, um, sorry about about the war, is that um, during the war, everybody sent their gold to America. Yeah, for safekeeping. Well, and also because they were the only productive economy left, and they were they were making stuff, so they they were getting lots and lots of gold. Anyway, well, we also owe them loads and loads of money. Well, yes, yes, there is that as well. Um, so basically, they uh, the Americans had all of the gold at the end of the war, and they had to think about it and decided that they that they wanted to keep it. They thought it'd be better for everybody concerned if they if they hung on to the gold. So they came up with a clever idea, which was um, they were gonna they were gonna have a new system. Where the dollar is basically the same thing as gold, so you can just use the dollar, which is fine, and then we keep the gold, and you know everybody's happy. Seems reasonable, right? Um, the only slight problem with that is that um, the Americans, and in fact everybody, they then started um, spending a lot because they figured out that the way to win an election in a democracy is basically just promise people loads of stuff and then worry about how you're going to pay for it in exchange for votes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we, we got so we got we, we got these two big setup problems. One, um, Western countries are now spending too much, and we've got all these baby boomers. I mean, they're still just kids at this point. We actually know actually the, the the bit where it gets exciting is the seventies. The seventies is where this really all kicks off because you know you had the fifties and sixties, which was like a sort of Western golden age. We'd won a war. We've got a new system in place. Everybody's happy. Um, you know, we're we're all on board with the new mission. You know, the American dream is born. You know, it's, it, you know, we, the UK was in a bit of a decline, but you know, the West as a whole under under American stewardship, that was all going well. Right, seventies arrive. All goes starts to go wrong here. So first thing is um, the government had uh, basically spent all of their money, and they started to realise that this system where the Americans get to keep all the gold, that's not going to work anymore because the Americans are spending it all. So the French, the French said, "Right, we want our gold back," and the Americans were like, "Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea." So what they said is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to break the link between the dollar and gold. And the dollar is now, and, and this, is, this is the slightly ridiculous bit, but I do cover it in some detail. The dollar is now backed by debt. It literally became a debt-based currency where um, they, they sort of created, uh, the more debt you create, the more money you create, and therefore it creates this incentive to always create more debt because you can't pay off the amount of debt that you've got with the current amount of resources, so you need to con- constantly expand. And you've got this constantly creating money flow. Now, uh, what, why, why, did, why did we get away with that for so many decades? Well, the answer is because, uh, the, uh, because the 
boomers. So we've got, we've got lots of new people. So this, this massive spike of people that were created after the war, the baby boomers, they start arriving into the workforce in the 70s. So they start going out and they start buying um, you know, a new suit and a new house and a new car, getting their first job, going out, buying furniture. I mean, ch- chip in with questions whenever you like, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll just model along through this. But they, you know, they, they, they start expanding, expanding this economy and then taking on debt. But you know that thing I mentioned earlier about how we've disconnected money from gold. currency, so, so the dollar from gold? What, what happened in that 1970s point is previous to that, um, people are becoming more productive. So the, the, the economy increased. And you basically had a, a straight line connection between um, productivity increases and um, uh, wages. I mean, the, the two things were connected because as productivity increased, wages decreased. Now, what happened in 1971 is those two lines broke apart. So you now had um, productivity continuing to rise at the same rate that it always had, but wages basically flatlined. So you've got this big population. They're creating lots of debt through the virtue of going off and buying things and, and contributing to the economy in all of this way. But their wages in real terms were actually going flat this whole entire time. But we were now in an expansionary economy. Right, so what, what are you going to do about it? Well, what you do is you basically just borrow the difference. So what you then started to have is a whole culture of people who, because their wages were flatlining, were decided that they were just going to start um, borrowing in order to make up the difference, in order to get that sort of growth. And it worked because assets sort of increased by an outsized amount of return compared to this debt they were taking on. So basically, if you were a boomer and you bought a house, you're fine. You're, you're even better if you're a boomer and you bought a house and borrowed money and put it in the stock market. That that definitely, definitely worked. But at least if you bought a house, it worked because your your house price would increase and therefore the value of your assets would, would increase as well. Right. And also, even if you made relatively poor choices years mm. ago when they've created these social safety net um, systems of socialized oh, yes. healthcare and the pension system, then the boomer mindset is, well, I've paid into this all my life, therefore mm. I can take out exactly as much as I want as I'm entitled to when I get to the ripe old age of my mid-60s. Yes. Unfortunately, um, obviously, with the dislocation of the money supply with anything of actual worth, what ends up happening is they just keep printing money to buy up more of that debt yes. and expanding the economy. And then what ends up happening is inflation, because the pensions in this country particularly are tied to the rate of inflation, um, yes. it actually gets outpaced of like how much it's worth. So you never, if you're a boomer, you never actually paid enough into the system to extract the same amount you would get outwards. So it's just yes. the current people's taxes are paying for the entitlements you've got. So you're yes. just robbing from the current generation. Yes. So, so that that was, so we're out of the 70s now. We're, now, we're now in the 80s, and exactly that dynamic is happening. So, so what was happening in the 80s is, is basically the boomers started to run everything because they're a big generation, and so their people go in and they start doing stuff. right? And, and they basically decide every election from that point on. Now, it started off as being a generous thing because I mean they're looking at their their parents' generation, the guys who fought in the war, a bunch of heroes, all of them blessed them. And um, back then, basically, the poor people were synonymous with old people. Like, it's basically the same thing. There were rich old people, but there weren't many. It was basically old people are, are poor people. So the, the boomers, they said, well, okay, well, let's, let's be nice and start putting these social insurance programs in place. So it was, you know, more generous pensions. It was more uh, expansive NHS. It was, it was welfare systems, all of this kind of stuff. And all of it was, was eminently affordable because you had this massive working age population, the, the boomers, uh, literally a boom in the population. 
supporting a relatively small number of old people, all of whom were poor, and they'd fought in the war, so they bloody deserved it, so, so they're getting something. They were supporting a relatively small number of people who couldn't be bothered to work or whatever else it was, or disabled, or all of those things, because the culture was different back then, and there wasn't just a huge number of those people. Um, and, and the NHS, of course, again, not really an issue, because there's such a, there's such a um, large amount of people in the productive sphere that the small number of people who are old and, and are falling apart and need lots of NHS and all the rest of it and have nasty accidents, you know, well, so number. you had lower immigration, so there were fewer yes. people that were never yes. paying into the system, using the system, and generally speaking, you didn't have so much abundance and so many things like microplastics and yes. um, genetically modified food and like, so people weren't getting sick as much, they weren't as fat, yes. they weren't having as many adverse lifestyle choices that would mean extra costs for the people that were healthy and were productive and paying into the system. Yes, so 80s and 90s, another really good time, uh, lots of expansion, lots of boom, this this whole kind of thing works. And during the during the reigns of the, of the 80s, you know, with Thatcher and Reagan, um, the, the working age population was increasing from the native stock by about 2% a year. And if you think of an economy basically just being, well, the economy is, is, is obviously um, GDP per capita times capita. So the capita was increasing. You get that 2% growth throughout the, throughout the 80s. So you're getting that lovely expansion all of the time. So this money system we talked about before that requires that permanent growth, I mean, it, it works. Because even though the money supply is expanding, the underlying resources are already expanding along with it, and the population's growing. So that gets us through the 80s, that, last, that large population, uh, working age population expansion. Right, then comes, then comes the 90s and the early 2000s. And what happens then? Um, oh, actually, I should also mention the women, because they, they started to join the workforce more, so that expanded. It was previously, I hadn't been doing that. Right, 80, uh, 90s and 2000s, then you get um, the, the, these sort of world trade deals. The, the time of globalism. And we now started getting the Chinese and the Indians and all those sort of people coming into the workforce. So again, the underlying um, uh, productive capacity of the, of the economy is expanding all of the time because we've got this expanding money system. So it, it looks like it's working on a superficial basis. Real wages aren't going up, but if you own a house and everybody does at this point, that ticks up every year. And so you feel richer anyway, and then you can borrow against it and everything works. Then you get to the 2010s and um, all, all hell starts to break loose because now, well, 2008, basically, it, it all started to break because um, you haven't got this, this um, expansion anymore because the, the working age population is not growing because the, the boomers are now leaving the workforce. They're, not, they're no longer joining it. Um, they had a reasonably large generation behind them, which is the millennials, but nowhere near as large as in, in relative terms as they were. Um, th there's no more China to add. There's no more India to add. I mean, I suppose you could add Africa, but that whatever that didn't work. Well, yeah. they haven't reached the development level required no, yet. And too, then the no. Chinese are spending yes. all the money on that and ring fencing them away from well, the Chinese are doing the, debt the economy. Well. Yeah, well, yeah, but also if the Chinese are capturing all yes. the resources in Africa yes. and also strip mining it and putting their people in place rather than yes. the Africans building up, that means that the Chinese have monopoly on that section of the market yes. and they actually hate us. So yes. that's not wise to do either. So you, you've now got a situation where you've got this very large population which is trying to draw on this stock of benefits that was actually designed for a large generation supporting a small generation. And this, and this is why the bloody wheels are coming off. And when you look at it in, in this sense, you can start to understand what, what's really happening in the world today. So, for example, take, um, take Georgia Maloney, for example. I, so, I, I wondered to ask, in her 20s. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, about uh, Italy specifically. Well, yeah, so so th this is a classic example. So she, um, she wins power by saying, oh, yeah, we, we're going to stop the immigration. 
Um, you know, we, we're going to make Italy for the Italians. But I, I think almost certainly what happened is she got into office and then the accountants came over and they showed her the numbers and they said, well, look, um, you've got a lot of old, a lot of old Italians. You've got a lot of debt. And if you want any possibility of the old Italians getting their pension, then you need to increase the economy. And what did we talk about before? The economy is GDP per capita times capita. So look, this is the capita, uh, GDP per capita that we're getting from the Italians. Um, it's this number. Well, why don't we just go and get a whole bunch of Africans? And this is, the, this is the modern theory, which is all capita equal. So we just go off and we get a whole bunch of Africans and we bring them in, and that will increase the, GD, uh, the capita times the GDP per capita, and the economy is bigger, and now you can pay your pension. Well, the important thing that, that means that politicians are persuaded by this is just looking at the raw birth metrics. And of course, this yeah. is a symbiotic thing because these are driven down by adverse economic conditions. I've spoken to Stephen Shaw about this, and he said, ever since 1973, where the oil shock hit and Italy experienced a hell of a lot of economic downturn, their birth rate has been collapsing at such a precipitous rate that they're one of the lowest in the world now, and they're yes. sitting at about one. And bear in mind for people yes. that don't realize, demographic replacement rate is 2.1 children per woman. So yes. they are facing total collapse. And yeah. so they're thinking, why don't we just battery farm a bunch of Eritreans and then line go up? Yeah. And of course, it won't work because yeah. if, you, if you are raised in a Western economy... Mm your ability to add to that economy is significantly higher than somebody who arrived on a boat five minutes ago and doesn't know anything about the culture and, you know, and, and whatever else characteristics they might have to their, to their contribution yeah, this or, is or a, lack of. A sort of faulty yes. liberal universalist presupposition that all people are fundamentally equal despite birth station and culture and yeah. the like. And running an economy on that presumption, um, we're seeing the decline right now. Yeah, but, but, but genuinely, the, the country's um, economies, the people... Well, there are different kinds of economists. There are economists like me who don't get jobs working for government, and then there are economists who do get jobs working for government, and they work on that set of presuppositions. I wanted to ask you about that in specific. Oh, yeah, because yeah, I remember from you know my days back when I was studying economics. So one question, does Italy have a massive debt? Oh, yeah, loads. Uh, okay. uh, and it's not the only yes. country. Now, I remember in the university, we were told that you never repay your debt. You're just... a uh, um, paying the dose, the the every 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 now and then. Yeah, yeah. when you get to fifty, it will be written off anyway, and it, yes. and it just un, suddenly mis disappears into yes. the ether. Not like a taxpayer has been guaranteeing. Exactly, it and this it. doesn't cause only an economic problem. Yeah. to a country, it also poses a political problem because at some point, if you are basically creating an unsustainable system, at yeah. some point the you know it's going to hit the fan. And uh, then you are not gonna. So, so let's address that point because that's the well, that's the one that they always. That's the thing that those type of economists, the mainstream people, and the and the journalists, yeah. they always come back to and say, "Oh, don't worry, it's, it doesn't work like a household. Yeah. You know, you just increase the debt forever." Now, in answer to your earlier question, does Italy have a lot of debt? Italy's debt to GDP ratio is one hundred and seventy percent, which is proper bad. I mean, in the UK and US, it's one hundred percent debt to GDP. Now, let, let's draw this level. Yeah. Well, yeah. I. I, I well, basically, after after seventy percent, you're screwed. I, I explain why no economics. But let let's just go with the let's go with the UK uh, US example of why a hundred percent of debt to GDP matters to the point that you raised. Okay, because if they're the same size, it makes the maths really simple. Which one is growing more? So is is your economy growing more? Is the debt growing more? Well, we know how much the debt is growing because it's the coupon on the debt. So it's it's basically the the interest rate. So the interest rate at the moment, what are you up to? Like now, four four five percent, something like that. Is the economy growing at four or five percent? No, not even close. You know, it's it's, it's growing at you know one point something, um, and that 
and in fact, the growth is getting strangled because the taxes to service the debt and the government spending are now strangling the um, productive output of the economy. So, of course, the growth is going to go low. And of course, we're going to have a productivity crisis. And of course, that can't grow. So, um, oh, and the other, uh, yeah, so, and, and the rate we're paying on our debt. Okay, and this comes on to us. Let me do a slightly more complicated thought on this now. Okay, so the the rate that we're paying on the debt is is a function of when we lent the money out. So we're lending out tranches of bonds all the time. Now a lot of it was issued when that debt was at a really low level, sort of base rate of almost zero. So that so the rate that we're paying on that um, government debt for the UK and US is is close to zero or one percent or something like that. What's happening? is every year that we are now on these higher interest rates, they are having to generate more debt to replace the old debt and is swapping out 0% rates for 5% rates. Now, what does that do to our national um, um, finances when you've got debt at this sort of level? Basically, it's going to increasingly squeeze out everything. So I'll, I'll throw in a practical point here. Um, I think almost certainly that what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to find an excuse to dramatically lower those interest rates very soon so they can roll over all of the government debt um, at a rate that they can actually afford because it's either that or say, okay, well, we're just shutting down Medicare, Medicaid, the NHS, the military, um, welfare payment. I mean, a whole bunch of those stuff would have to go. I think the US are now paying something like a trillion. Well, they get, they're on track to pay a trillion a year just in interest costs. And they only collect something like 4.6 trillion. Yeah. So, so this whole thing. So, yeah. So, so to your point about what, when you're told, and everybody is told, everybody's told this in the media, that don't worry about the debt because you never pay it off. Well, yeah, but you have to, you have to service the debt. And when, and when the, when it, when both the economy and the, the, the debt is at a hundred percent, all of your GDP growth is being consumed by the debt payments. Yeah. Because GDP growth, what is it? It's basically is it's population growth, like we talked about. It's the productivity increase, which as we talked about, is being completely strangled out, and it's debt growth as well. And they're trying to jerry-rig that by taking a fourth factor, which is immigration, to sub out that a first one, which is the population growth. So they're desperately trying to say, okay, well, we know we're not getting any productivity growth because we're taxing the shit out of everybody. So of course they're not gonna they're not gonna have any productivity increase. In fact, well, growth hasn't grown since around the 1990s as well. This was something mm. that um, an economist over at the Telegraph observed when he was looking at the birth rates versus immigration argument, and he was making the case that okay, even if you've been importing all these people since 1997 when yes. something happened, the People are not nearly as productive as the native population because they don't benefit from the same education yes. system and the value system. So by substituting them out, um, yeah, you might be able to count GDP because you're spending more money and government spending is factored into GDP and more people exchanging more money in more hands equals more line. But that doesn't mean that the rate of change is as it would be were the native population having babies just because they're not as productive. Yes. Yes, and and I mean the rate of change of technology is is continuing to go up at a fairly consistent rate. So the technology is improved, but then you've got another issue there, which is um, you you all of this technology requires capital funding in order to get up to scale on anything, in order to create you know the next big software thing that can that, that can that can move the boxes and so on. And the capital costs are basically low in the US because they're the fountain of this of of creating the uh, effectively creating the money supply which every other system runs off. So we kind of screwed on a, on a whole number of ways. This this debt is really getting ahead of us, and it's, and, and actually, I'm going to do a bit of a crossover now with Bose series because I did I did one on um, the uh, the tulip bubble with Bo, but we also covered things like the South Sea bubble and that and that kind of stuff. And basically, what happens throughout history is this situation that I'm talking about now has happened a whole bunch of different times. A whole bunch of different times where basically the government gets far too far ahead of itself, gets far too much in debt. 
And basically the same solution plays out every single time, which is the government finds a way of shifting it onto the people and then wiping it out. Because they don't want to they don't want to take the knock. And that's almost certainly what's going to happen again now. And I think what it's probably going to happen is there is we're probably going to go into something called uh, financial repression, where we say, okay, everybody who's got a, a pension or something else that the government can get its claws into, we're going to say, okay, you're going to have to own this safe government debt because you know we don't want you taking risks on crypto or or shares or or tech or whatever it is. So we're going to make you buy safe government bonds. And once they've shoved enough of it out, then you can restructure it and you can wipe it out. And the interesting thing is, okay, how are they going to restructure it? Are they just going to do it honestly and say, you know, all these bonds that we put out, we're only paying 50 pence on the pound for everything that we put out? Or are they just going to keep inflating the money supply? Yeah. yeah. Question here, because yes. it has to do with how the concepts, the meaning of concepts change. Now, I yes. think that yes. uh, the notion of inflation is a notion that has changed its conventional meaning. Yes, very much so. And you're talking about uh, about it quite a lot. In fact, your second brokenomics is about inflation. Yes. It's called inflation, the greatest lie. How has this, what's the, what is the significance of this? Well, if, if, you, if you've got a dictionary, and this is an interesting challenge for anybody at home, if you've got a dictionary at home, which was written in probably the 80s, it started to change in the 90s, and you look up the word inflation, what you'll see is it will say an increase in the money supply because that, that's actually what it is. It's, it's the total amount of money increasing. Whereas if you look in a dictionary that was written from sort of you know late 90s onwards, yeah. it says inflation is the price of goods going up. No, that, that's a symptom of what's actually what inflation actually, which which is increasing the money supply. So that's that's what you got into at the moment. So every time the government's run out of money, they do the massive refinancing. They drew the quantitative easing, which we had back in 2008, but they created a whole bunch more money. That increased inflation. We then had that again in 2020. A whole bunch of more money was created. And then following from that, 18 months later, there was a whole bunch of inflation. And now they're trying to gaslit us to say, and the Bank of England is doing this, is saying, you know, don't you dare ask for pay increases because that will cause inflation. No, the money you created in yeah. Is, is the inflation. Yes. They're just trying. What, what they're actually trying to do is to devalue the denominator, so devalue the debt, while making you accept lower wages so that the, so that the whole capital structure can be pervert, uh, preserved and you get poorer. It's, it's basically trying to make workers be the bad carriers. And, and this stuff, I mean, if, 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 I, if I could have a half-hour conversation with everybody in the country, there would be a revolution. There would be heads on spikes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But because it's a bit... <sighs> We, we, it's a bit convoluted. Basically, they kind of get away with it. So you, it's you, just theft at a huge yeah. scale. You said before that as an economist, you wouldn't yes. get a job in the government. Yes. Because oh, yeah. I suspect that you are more of an Austrian uh, Yeah, so, so the, I mean, there's, there's various Austrian different types. But, but, it's more free market yeah. friendly, isn't it? The, the, the main ones are the Austrians who, who basically tend to look at these problems and conclude that the government needs to get smaller and we need money that you can't debase. Yes. So proper money like gold or potentially even Bitcoin in the future. And uh, do they also make controversial statements like you shouldn't uh, consume more than you produce? Yeah, well, we turn it the other way around. We, we say that because um, the Keynesians, the Keynesians, the guys on the other side, they're always worrying about the demand problem. Is there enough demand for the goods and all that kind of stuff? Whereas we turn it around the other way and say demand is basically infinite. I mean, if, if, if I could have mansions and yachts, I would have it. What I have is a supply problem, which is being able to produce enough value in order to create the, yeah. Is it also demand of, of uh, jobs? 
so i.e. labor shortages well no it's pro- it's productivity if if we if if everybody was churning out a massive amount of productive output all the time um then we would have that surplus that then allow us to redistribute it and spend it on leisure goods or or whatever it else that we wanted to spend it on uh, the the reason i'm asking is because i think that in uh, let's say in the austrian school mm. there's the idea that if something doesn't work stop doing it whereas yes. in the in, in if something yes. goes wrong just double down on it okay? yes. and keep doing it yes. again and the reason i meant i mentioned um, labor shortages and the emphasis on demand is to link it with a demographic problem you said before yeah. especially when you mentioned italy that for instance people told to meloni that you know you you want all these positions to be covered yes and god forbid if yeah. some of these positions that maybe some of them are not even Required, they they go and yeah. I did I did I did a brokenomics yesterday. That, that's why I I mentioned yeah. the yeah. I did a brokenomics um, yesterday, which will be coming out in a, in a week or two on house prices. I've got a couple of housing developers in here, and we talked about the, yeah. why house prices cost as much as they do, and it's it's kind of ridiculous because you you would think that the house building process involves buying a bit of land, building a house on it, sticking a mark up on it, and and off you go. Bob's your uncle. It's not that at all. The amount of consultants there have to be middlemen in. Yep. That, that's so, the issue. Create a middleman. Oh, there, there, but there are hundreds of middlemen in this process. Yeah. So hundreds of consultants and people who tick boxes and do that kind of. I mean, seriously, they 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 want it. In, in, whenever they want to build houses, they need a team of consultants to sit on the site overnight for a week with a pairs of binoculars, counting the bats that fly overhead. And that's just one team of consultants that go into the process of, of building houses. And this is for brownfield sites as as well as greenfield. So it's just our economy has become so st- and what that is is it is it's basically stealth taxation um through through different means i mean building it on into the supply chain so you, we, we look you know we, we looked at uh, you know communist china and say okay well they're, they're communist because the chinese um you know own 26 percent of the economy well i mean in, in this country um it's it's like 52 percent um, once, once you add on all of the all of the ways that the government controls, and then bear in mind, if everything else, because they're controlling the money rate, that's effectively communism, but just a high, uh, at the money tier. Uh, uh, qu- question: What do you think of the statement that inflation, in the standard se- sense, is an indirect tax? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely, because the your your purchasing power is being diluted, and the value of that is transferred to effectively the debt holders, which is largely the government, which is like I say. The debt's the same size as the economy, so yeah, that is and, and absolutely. So if you've got, as we've had for the last couple of years, you've had debt of at least ten percent. You've had a ten percent pay cut before you've, you've done anything else, which is effectively a taxation. So I'll, I'll cap this off. Um, what um, bro, so brokenomics? Uh, check that out. Uh, use the code Sargon to get a to, to get discount on on signing up. Where I cover. Uh, lots of things. I'll whiz through this as fast as I can. So we, we cover all the basics like inflation, interest rates, debt, deficit, gold, Bitcoin, CBDC, cent, universal basic incomes. I do like to do a bit of stuff on the pandemic because it really annoyed me. So now I've got a platform. I'm, I, I, I do things on face masks and digital IDs and the economics of lockdown. Oh, and the, the Canadian trucker protest, that'll be coming out soon as well. And I do topics like BlackRock, um, Thomas Sowell, we did that one. That was yep. a good one. Um, the, actually, one of the most popular ones was um, well, I analyzed the film Margin Call. Um, which was um, a bit random, but people love that one. Debt ceilings, what happened in 1971? Um, fourth, uh, fourth turning, um, the economics of the USSR. I mean, a whole, a whole bunch of different we're, stuff. We're going to have a very fun one. Oh, yes, we're going to do hoflation, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, we are, yeah. Yes. You've decided to make me your guinea pig, yes. which has been yes. horrendous. Because everyone, everyone, all the Zoomers in the comments were going, well, Dan, AA and Carl don't understand <clears throat> dating as a young man. So we sent him out. Yeah. 
been a disaster. Yes, and and and, and 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 we're both we're both reading up on the economics of um, well, the, the, how how yes. how the actual uh, mechanics of apps and yes. swipe culture and that and contain perverse incentives that never actually get you a, a girlfriend. So that'll yes. be that'll be fun one. Yes, we 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 we're diving into that. So so we we we're, we're tackling all the important issues. So yes, if you like the sound of that, um, I I I I do a bit more structured on the uh, on the actual proeconomics. But that that was off the top of the head. Uh, what I'm talking about. So uh, check that out. A masterful riff. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> right. Okay, you're turning to me. Am I, yes, we're, I we're a, turning to you, Connor. Have I got a thing? All right. Um, a uh, full, full disclosure, yeah. I have not prepared at all for this because I just got back off the train about half an hour ago. So oh, you're going to do brilliantly. This will be wonderful. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to do brilliantly. So you, because we, we kind of have a theme, you know, him and I. We, he, he does thinking um, and, and I do money. Right. Or shooting. Um, and, and and you do and you sort of you cover the cultural decline for us. Yes. yes. So so I've got a weird sort of niche over at the Lotus Eaters because when I joined about a year ago, I didn't actually interview for the job, which was mm. quite fun because I just came on. I was intended to do a guest podcast, and then Carl just went, "Oh, do you want a cup of tea?" And we walked into the kitchen. He just turned around to me and went, "Oh, when can you start?" So I've I've sort of lodged myself in with weird little passion projects that I find. Kind of interesting, and ever since the start of this year, well, there's there's, there's two reasons I've sort of fallen into this niche of uh, the cultural decline, trying to bring a, a ceasefire between the, the war of the sexes, and because you do do a lot of premium content, but you're just like minister without portfolio. Yeah, I, I I I worked out how many videos I do, and ever since starting, I've averaged one every other day. Um, so I'm a bit of a workaholic, it turns out. But but one of so there were two reasons I did this, and, and number one is because before I worked in that worked here and a little bit in media as well. Yeah. I was in the sort of think tank policy, politics sphere and I was kind of sick of the managerial mindset that had infected every single NGO and parliament and the like yes. that had made them deaf to whether or not we could question the paradigm and the trajectory of travel and more so we were just negotiating the speed and treating people like beads on an abacus, like sliding them along and just giving them the right amount of conditions and then they'll just shut up and take whatever the elite think. Livestock management is, is all that governments do these days. Yeah, yeah. spot on. Yeah, it, it's, the, it's the golden arches theory applied to literally everyone despite what's, that. What's theme. the golden arches theory? You know the idea that if uh, two nations have a McDonald's and never go to war? So it's the idea that if we just give them enough bread and circuses and enough material prosperity, then cultural issues don't matter. That's why Michael yeah. Gove dismisses everything as, as an irrelevant culture war. All we've got to do is just negotiate exactly how we're going Mind to... Mind you, that golden arches thing would have broken with Ukraine and Russia. That's exactly what I'm saying. So yeah. like, even though the theory is debunked, um, yeah. they still treat everyone like in economic integers on the spreadsheet that they can just actually okay. program yep. without any sort of set, like sentimental concerns or cultural and parochial... Um, preferences and things like that. The, the, so the Westminster Bible just don't do that. And, and when I was, so I was developing a paper when I was doing environmental policy and I was kind of asked to write to spec and I really kicked up a fuss about that and I attempted to circumvent a lot of what the government were already doing in the paper. And they listened to some of it, so they ended up financing some more nuclear power stations, but they ignored me when I was saying, well, you do realize that doubling down on renewables is going to put us at a disadvantage from importing all the oil and gas stuff. And then if a conflict kicked off, for example, with Russia, um, well, that's going to leave us up shit creek, isn't it? And then, well, about six six to eight months later, that happened. Um, so I was kind of annoyed by okay, the fact so that you, no one was you were trying to basically give sound practical advice. But that didn't align with the narrative. Yes, and the government was like, "No, just give us the narrative." Yes, 
Yes. And, and, and the narrative at, at speed at which makes it feasible to get there and we can sell it to the plebs rather than, well, is this, the, is this the destination we actually want? So, so to effect effectively, they were asking you to do policy-based evidence finding. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the sage modeling that they said, we're going to model for the outcomes we've already predicted? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that was the entire policy sphere. And I wasn't like that. I was more interested in the okay. moral texture but of you where were, we're going. You were a policy wonk. Yes. But you got disillusioned by the fact that it was just kind of fantasy... Yeah, I, I hated the permanently encrusted NGO bureaucracy where people just exist to spin wheels and manufacture consent for their own NGO existing rather than solve a problem. So I, I bounced out, hated it, um, and then then came and joined here. But but part of the reason why that feeds into what I'm doing is because I'm trying to rebuild a kind of paradigm or heuristic for living that is outside that managerial bean counting idea. And this is something that I, I said about earlier. The Zoomers, they they think about all relationships as transactional. And yep. so all we do is think about each other as integers. And you can't really have a eudaimonic, wholesome life if you just think about how much value can I extract from the other person. Um, we, we had this conversation about Crowder and the Daily Wire contract. Where, yes. Whereas Crowder, despite his possible personal failing sins, it, he was complaining, we were friends you don't come to me with terms like this that presume that you can screw me over unless I kick up a fight. And Daily Wire were just saying, it's just business. And too many people now are thinking it's just business in their own personal relationships um, because we've been trained to deracinate ourselves from local communities, to go out to the city, to live, to go to university, to party it up and think that our own actions don't have consequences. And actually, it, it, it comes down to the sort of sexual revolution idea of relationships of where um, yeah. if, you, if you have some kind of hookup relationship, then all of the inevitable consequences that existed for thousands of years before that can have a technological intervention that can take away said consequences. We, we see um, bursts through examples of this sort of burst into the culture all the time. I mean, one, one of the recent ones was the whole thing about the body count issue. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect example of that. Purely materialistic, purely transactional. And then all of a sudden, it, 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 it clashes with the underlying um, instincts of the other part of that, of that equation. Yeah, well, and this is and this is why I don't like the way it's currently being talked about because the opposition to the body count argument is you're depreciating your sexual market value, and that's not how you actually think about someone. What it what it yeah. does is it creates precarious grounds on which to trust someone because you don't you can't guarantee that if they view themselves in such a depreciated way that they won't see the sacredness of your relationship. Yes, when you're in it with them, even if even if they claim to do so because they haven't got the history of doing that. It's not about adding up your relative qualities on a spreadsheet and then rationalistically deciding to come together because you can't trade up and there's no better offer. It's about how people feel about the other person. And it feels like a violation of trust before you even met them. This is the Logan Paul situation that's going on right now. Which is it, funny. <laughs> it, it, but it, it, but it's funny, but it's also kind of tragic because yes. It's, yes, not, it is. it's not necessarily his fault that his fiance was a whore. But... Yeah. He should have more respect for himself and be able to select a woman that shouldn't be that. But he doesn't value himself in such a way that he thinks he could command more. He yeah, so there's a bit of loyalty. beta energy going on there. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's got a fat guy's mind. This, this is something Patrice O'Neill said, right? Is You can be a fat guy that gets in shape, but you'll still appro uh, approach a woman with the idea that you don't deserve her and she can like feel that energy re resonating off of you and she'll be put off by it. Yes. And so like thinking of thinking of how we relate to each other in a very transactional way has been something I've been trying to reform. And and part of the reason of that as well is that I'm not immune from this. But yeah. all all Zoomers have had something taken from them. This is something that C.S. Lewis wrote about in the opening of Abolition of Man. We've been miseducated to believe that 
everything we feel about the world is not derived from something eternal and true from the world that we interpret it, that we have a shared culture, but it's just an artificial projection that can be substituted out for another projection. So for example, um, actually, if you're sleeping around, then society is you, shaming you for being a slut and your conscience is that standard that you've internalized. And if you just get rid of the standard, then you'll be really empowered and you'll have absolutely you no know, consequences. And no, there is actually something eternal and true there that governs human interactions, yeah. that you're gaslighting an entire generation into turning their blinkers off. And then they're going to run up against those adverse consequences down the road. And then you're going to get an entire generation of either men that can't get women that are loyal or fem cells who 40 years after 40 have no one to care for them. And they're going to be like a resentful revolutionary constituency. So I can see this massive problem the, down the, the road. The oversupply my, of spinster issue that we've got coming down the track at us. Absolutely. Because at the moment we're dealing with the, in, the incel problem. Yeah. Um, but they're actually behaving themselves reasonably well. Yes. Um, but I, I kind of suspect that the 40 and 50 year old spinsters are not going to be happy once they realize what they've locked themselves into. Well, also the incels can't vote. They don't have the power to compel the state to vote them more money. Whereas the 40 and 50 year old women do. They can just henpeck you into making all productive men, particularly other women's husbands who have made the right choices, redistribute all of their income to subsidize their bad lifestyles. And that's already happening at scale. Imagine how much worse it's going to get. And, and the reason I say I have a personal stake in this is because like towards the start of the year, you know, I was one of the guys that thought I had it all worked out, had a personal relationship breakdown, had to reassess things, and plunging back into the kind of sphere that lots of other men are experiencing. And I'm probably slightly better positioned than some of the viewers. Um, but to try and grapple with this myself means that I'm within the paradigm that, that lots of other people are also operating in. And so I'm trying to articulate it so we can all, because yep. I, I feel like I'm compelled to try and speak into being a world that is better than the current one that I can raise my so, eventual. I mean, there, there always is something about being a young man, which is, which is finding your place and all that kind of yes. thing. I mean, that's, I mean take, take Taxi Driver, which, which is a film about essentially that. I mean, I, 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 suppose, I suppose it goes off in other directions as well. Yeah, slightly, yes. yeah. But, but it, is, it is essentially, the, the, the foundation is, is a young man trying to find his place and kind of stuff. So, so it, is, it is an old and eternal story that, that every generation goes through. But yeah, it does feel like this is why some Zoomers people are, are extra screwed. It's why they're resonating with Ken right now, right? Yes. So they, they, they want patriarchy, but it's performative. Like they're literally riding invisible horses. But the only way out is through. So we kind of have to LARP for a little bit and rediscover the things that we've been cut off from in order to replant our roots. And yes. the thing is, and I spoke to loads of students yesterday when Carl, went and, Carl and I went and did an event. They were asking for answers, but they were also saying, what, are you just predicting, saying that we should like grow a garden and do a manual job and get a girlfriend and go to church? Like, is there not more than that? Is it, and it's like, there's not really much you can do right now because the political system has its ears closed. I'm not saying don't organize because you have to. But don't expect that overnight you can change the system that hates you. Instead, all you can do is take root, and it might feel a bit performative, but it's only because you're trying to re-articulate something rationally that two generations prior didn't even need to be examined, and that's why they were much happier. So we're a sort of limbo lost generation. We need to re-anchor ourselves, reforge that great chain. Yeah, because I mean, there, there was a progression that was on offer for the for the oldest millennials, the Gen Xers and the Boomers, which is. Um, essentially sort of play the game, get a home, get a family and sort of have a place in a community and all that kind of stuff. But it's, I mean, I suppose you can be a Zoomer and have a house, but it's, it, it, when? It, well, it takes a hell of a doing. It takes either your grandparents having to die off, which means that your own children won't have that close connectivity that I, for example, really benefited from. Uh, or it means being a passport bro and going elsewhere and accepting a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, we got to the point where 
I mean, this is the whole thing with women's liberation. So women, women were liberated from having to stay at home. So you know, excellent. You can go out and you can get a job now if you want to. Well, so, actually, we, we spoke about that in a two-part series. Yeah, so right. So, so yeah, so, so you, women can now go out and get a job if they want to. Except after a few decades, um, that actually that choice goes. Yeah, it becomes mandatory. You, you both need to work. You both have to. So, so it's not a choice anymore. It's So you, you used to have the choice for a short, so you had this window of liberation, which was choose between home and work. And now it's just you choose work. And 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 then for a while, for the millennials, you could then have a period where, okay, you could both work until you bought a house and then you've got it and then you're just servicing the debt, right? And then the woman can go and work. And I just wonder for the millennials, is it going to be that, no, actually you can either have a house and remain childless or... Yeah, you know, you, you have to pick one or the other. But there's there's two parts to that. And then for Gen Alpha, it would be like, yeah, you need to be in a polygamous bloody relationship in order to have a house. Yeah, you you, you need like a communal longhouse, for example. Yes. So there's there's two parts to that. So the, the first part of this was Evil Origins of Feminism Part 1, where I went through Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, 800 pages of the worst tripe I've ever read. But the problem is that she was a... Um, groomer resentful spinster who then slept with John Paul Sartre and she wanted the entire world to become a Marxist brotherhood by psychologically and biologically reconditioning women to be on par with men to the point of where the last line of her book was brotherhood or she wanted the human race to discontinue because she compared herself to Tiamat you know the great dragon of chaos I always assume Sartre was gay maybe I was thinking of Foucault yeah you're, you're thinking of Foucault yeah um, so it was boys the yeah. problem yeah exactly Nonce. the problem is that all of those insane suppositions have now become culturally ubiquitous like yes. my, the, the my body, my choice narrative, the baby is a parasite narrative, the women need to work narrative, they all come from second sex. And they were retroactively legitimated by technological development. And that's something we discussed in the part two that came from. Because I think, I think most women are at the point where they understand now that the choice has been taken away from them. But you still, you, even now, you still meet women who, who perceive it in the terms of, of this. Yeah. Which is, which is the, 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 the liberation. It's not, not liberation. It's, no. It's, that's gone. It's compulsion. But but yes. this is this is why technological innovation creates a ratcheting effect upwards towards conforming to certain pressures. And so the invention of the birth control pill retroactively legitimated Beauvoir's ideas, because she wrote Second Sex in the late 1940s. Birth control yep. pill came comes around late 60s, early 70s to be more widely available. Inducts women into the workforce and therefore institutionalizes lots of the original roles that women had. And what happens there is the reason you have to choose between a family or a house is because originally they were indistinguishable. And they were yes. indistinguishable because the oikos, the household, the family unit, was the primary mode of market, civic, and social participation. That was the only mode by which you were classified. You'd move from one household to another. That's why communities would start bringing people together. That's why dating is relatively new, and it's actually a burden to place on single individuals. That's why they've outsourced it to these algorithms that help us commodify each other and, and create spreadsheets. Because we understand metrics easier than navigating vague things like trust with no help. And so we actually went through this discussion of how that's a product of the industrial economy and then the sexual revolution was almost inevitable and how to reverse that through yeah. a sort of consciousness revolution of telling mutually subsisting stories rather than thinking of each other as economic actors and yeah. women walking away from the birth control bill because that is one of the worst innovations that's ever happened, uh, particularly for women as well because if what happens with the birth control bill is women, all the consequences of sex suddenly land on them. So if you sleep with a caddish guy, then yes. it is your responsibility to have that abortion Right, so the baby becomes immediately devalued as a as a as a undesirable consequence of hookups. And if women are more agreeable, then rather than holding off and commanding better standards of men, and believe me, the standards for men dating now are way too high, which is why we're doing a brokenomics on on hoflation. But they're just not proportionate. Back then they were high, but they were proportionate, right? And what happens is if you go on a date with a man now, consent 
doesn't mean you can say yes or no. Yes. It means that the default assumption is yes because you have no consequences from it. So you have to invent new reasons why to say no. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 so this, this is going from a culture that we used to have for a very long time, which was basically sex was essentially the same thing as a proposal. I mean, if you, 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 you'd be uh, dragooned into marrying the girl or yes. shotgun marriage or, or, or whatever it was to where we've arrived at now, which views babies as a sexually transmitted disease. Yes, exactly. Yeah, And, and, and it, is an, it is such an incursion on your autonomy that women, and this is something that Abigail Favale wrote out, which I did an interview with her at some point, um, where the default <clears throat> assumption of a woman's fertility because of the birth control pill is to change a working biological function to having the setting not being on, but off. It's the first intervention that didn't correct something that's wrong with the body. It meant that something that was right with the body was made wrong. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay, that's good. and so and so sterility is now the prerequisite for women to participate in the workforce on parity with men, which means that Simone de Beauvoir's vision of brotherhood yes. and antinatalism is real. It's happened. So we're living in the aftermath of that disaster. Tell so me one thing: the, the feminists won. Currently, yes. Oh dear. I have the impression that feminists are blowing out of proportion the idea of uh, the importance that it being a man with a high body count had before. And it seemed to me that they did preach the message to women that you need to be sexually liberated. And because men acted like that, women should act like that as well. Yes. Uh, what, what do the people you interview say about this? Oh, so because I, you have been doing many interviews. Yeah, so I actually had a chat with quite a few people. Um, so I had a chat with Louise Perry, specifically, who's written The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she comes at this from an evolutionary psychological angle. So she says very contentious things like, um, no, actually, the feminists are wrong about rape. It's not about power. It's actually a mating strategy for low-status men to take by force what they otherwise wouldn't get. And unless you understand that, then you can't create strong interventions against it. So you can't like teach men with consent workshops not to rape, because the ones that know not to rape won't rape. Instead, you can just have such harsh penalties that you'll scare some of the weaker men into not doing it. And that allows a strong male role in society because they can act as the punishers and the, and the distributors of morality. But then the next boat turns up and they haven't been on this course. Oh yeah, exactly. That's also part of the part of the problem. We just have to lower migration, yeah. of course. And and so her her case against the sexual revolution has been quite useful among young women who have feel aggrieved by this lack of a cultural fabric, and so they've been persuaded by that. And and one of her contemporaries, who I'm very grateful to have spoken to, uh, is Mary Harrington. We've since become very very good friends, and her book, which is Feminism Against Progress, has actually been a real paradigm former for me. Recommend everyone read it, slash watch mine and Carl's discussion, Evil Origins of Feminism, part two. And she goes through this industrial trajectory of how technology made feminism inevitable and how it's essentially made us unisex. So like the Dino is the ultimate unisex man because men and women are doing the exact same jobs now, but you're wearing the paraphernalia of hyperfemininity and hypermasculinity, but you have to buy it and it's ultimately non-functional. Like Dino's shredded, but he doesn't do any manual work. Mrs. Dinette is on Instagram flouting her curvaceousness, but her boob job <laughs> makes it impossible to breastfeed. So she's not actually fertile, like things like that. So now sex is opt-in and cosmetic. And is that's she a- making TikTok videos as well? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. So you're, you're monetizing your sexuality, but it's ultimately sterile. So that's where the Zoomers are, which sucks. Not, not great, no. Yes. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I, I had a chat with like Freya India about the specific pressures that go on to women. I had a chat with Nina Power about the specific pressures that go on to men. And she isn't actually one of these feminists that have been gatekeeping the definition of masculinity, like in the press. She just asked men what they wanted. So, so, so these are, these are all feminists, but they're talking to. Well, they're you. not really feminists. They're not right. Really. So 
Because like, you, you've got these different tranches of feminists. Haven't you? yeah. You've got the first wave. and, then, and So what, what kind of feminists are the kind of feminists that are, w- are willing to sit down and have a conversation? Well, they're you? calling themselves reactionary feminists because Mary said it's a signal scramble that upsets all the right people. But feminism has become culturally synonymous within women's interests. And she's saying, well, currently feminism is liberal, universal, and makes men and women lose their sex differences. And so we are more alike than ever. Um, this is something that Nina calls a sibling economy, of where we're like, a bit like Cain and Abel rather than Adam and Eve. So we're competing for the same vectors of competence and resources. But that means that because we're so alike, it would be a bit incestuous for us to have relationships. So no one's having relationships. So we need to be way more different, and then we can come back together and have those families again. Uh, um, yeah, sorry, important question, because yeah. I think that you're doing something really important. Oh, and cheers, there it. are many people who say that, well, you shouldn't talk to, to them because they are not on our side. Why do you think that it's important to talk to them? Um, one, private communications which cannot be leaked means they're very on our side. Um, two, as well, you are not going to get out of this without women being on board. And not just because single women are the overwhelming cohort that vote for left-wingers, but because women do not listen to men, frankly. Mainly, they do not. Unless they're men they really care about. And that's the concept of headship. But we don't have those families. We don't have those fathers in the home at the moment. So... To steal a phrase from Mary, culture will be downstream what the hot girls want. And as soon as the hot girls... I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, as soon as the hot girls have a reaction against the sexual revolution, like Sydney Sweeney, the most perfect woman on earth, turning around and saying, I'm a director, but at 25 I thought I'd be a mum by now and it's all worthless without it. When it starts swinging that way, that's when some more women are going to start to listen. Yeah, but here's an issue. Go on. If, if I want to see how compatible this is with what you said before about um, going to women and tr- and communicating to them that I want you to be on board with this mm-hmm. if, they, if they see this as low status. What do you mean low status in how? Well, I mean, let's take flirt for instance. If you, commu- if you scream to a lady that you know, I, I, I'm here to care for all your wishes and solve all your problems, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. Yeah, but that's not the way of communicating. That's not how it is. Okay, what, what you've got are two current camps aggrieved by the current paradigm. Yeah. But we have inaccessible languages to each other. That's why some of these women are talking to these women. And we've got a lot of men talking to a lot of dispossessed young men, I think, a lot of the time in the wrong way. They're saying maladapts to the current paradigm by out-competing women with so many Bugattis that you just... But, but it, it, isn't there a fundamental mismatch in this, in that young men notice it first because they, basically they want to get laid and they're not, and you're getting this massive uh, incels, like 30% of all young men are incels now. Well, okay, so, so, so the numbers breaking down are quite interesting there, because yeah. that's, on, that's on the low... So that distribution is most pronounced among 18 to 22. Though the, they yeah. age out of that a little bit, but what the actual, I think, complaint is at the heart of this, and this is also part of why some of the MGTOW guys who really don't like me um, uh, are complaining, is that, that it's not so much about sex, but intimacy. Like it's the fact that this culture has robbed us of our ability to trust one another and form nourishing relationships and have families because people yes. can have these hookups. Again, I've, yep, I've been yep. involved in this culture, but it's ultimately meaningless. It's just kind of sad. Yeah, but no, so, so the point I'm thinking about in terms of the mismatch is, is young men notice it first yes. because it impacts them at this sort of early age. Hmm. Whereas for the young women, they, they get messages thrown at them when they're, when they're, when they're girls and the young girls. Which is you know all the media and the Disney and the, which is the you know the girl boss and you do this and actually the most rewarding thing in life is to have an office cubicle job and have a boss who hates you and all that kind yep. of stuff. And by the time it gets to the point that they notice that oh hang on this this has gone seriously wrong and I don't like this, 
um, they're past their sort of critical point in order to get their life together. And they're now in their sort of 30s or 40s. And so, so there's a natural mismatch in the experience that men and women have of the same problem, mm. which is the, the inability to trust each other and the, the, the disincentives to sort of pair bond and all the rest of it. That's how, but it, but that, it is a fundamentally different way of perceiving the same problem talking about it. Yeah, and that's how it has been for quite some time. And that's why it's worthwhile having these conversations with to undo the cultural brainwashing that has robbed women of their fertility and their ability to trust men from the mouth of these women. And also quite a few of these women have very cutting ways of understanding the perverse incentives of culture as they have fallen on women specifically that are just inaccessible to us because I've been reliably informed that representation matters. And so if our embodied differences are very different, then we can understand them up until a point, but we also need that ambiguous complementarity. And it's worth me talking to these women because they have the same with us. Like they don't understand the experience of young men. All they can say is we need to let young men sort out themselves. So coming together, having that solidarity and allowing each other to make space for each other to fix the culture, I think that's probably the healthy way to go about it. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Connor. All right. Should we see what the um, the lovely subscriber people say? Have we got, have we got video comments, John? We have four. Here's some pictures from my third day in the UK. I was down in this area and I visited St. Michael's Mount and Minack Theatre. Some observations from an American perspective. Your bar staff and cashiers do not seem to expect Southern manners. Stuff like, yes and no, ma'am. Yes and no, sir. Saying please and thank you. Saying thank you for your time. Y'all have a good day now. I've had several confused looks. And at least two, thank you for the politeness. Also, St. Michael's Mount is one of the most beautiful places I have ever been. The Southern Manners thing is something that we really should revive because we used to have general mores of politeness and we just don't. Like it's, it's the same thing with my, my, my case for young men wearing suits. It's not just because you feel more powerful, because you do. It, it's because it's both you are treated with more respect and it's an act of aesthetic considerateness to those around you if you put yourself together because it's way nicer to walk through a city where people are just smart and well dressed, rather yeah, than you, slobs. Yeah, you watch um, any old footage of like the you know, 1930s or 40s. You think they're off to like some formal dinner or something. It's actually just some farmhand who's wearing a three-piece suit. Exactly. So say please and thank you, yes and no, sir, and wear a suit. That's good advice for young men. Into the next one. Welcome back to Lotus Drinkers. Let's get into the booze. This one's called Trap Cigar Butt Burns Toffee Factory. It's a nine-year Highland. 63.4%, and uh, just three of them, two bottles. Made. This is a really smoky number. I hate them. I'm almost certainly sure that one was whiskey. You whiskey drinkers, you two? I have been, but I've tried to quit drinking, really. I, I broke that rule this week, and I've sort of suffered for it but yeah I'm, I'm not like much of a whiskey connoisseur I do like Jack Daniel's Tennessee honey because it's basically like cough syrup I, I like the toffee vodka is there alright but I, I'm a, a vodka man sort of caramel sort of caramel vodka shots quite nice so this was the best I could do for an English breakfast with what I had available to me at local grocery stores I did get the proper beans yeah, though they were actually the, the easiest thing to find it would seem and uh, as far as the bacon and the sausage, those were a no-go. The bacon tasted good. I hate those sausages. And um, I don't eat eggs, so I didn't do any eggs. And what? black pudding I'd have to make from scratch. Plus, it's uh, kind of a no-go for me, too. But let me know what you think. You've done well, but you well, need eggs. Given that he's in America, he, he did the best he could. Where is the hash brown? <laughs> <laughs>
Yes, and yes. Oh, so are you aware that Americas don't do hash browns like we do hash browns? Apparently. So, what, what do they do for hash browns? So we do hash browns as like little potato compact things, right? Yes. They have a hash brown bowl where it's like potato sawdust. It's all shredded. It's really? like, yeah, yeah. So you know the inside of the hash brown is all the shredded like potato. Petit Pro or something. It's, yeah, it's like a pile of pencil shavings or something like that. It's okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Stelos is delighted. You mentioned the zombie apocalypse yesterday, so naturally I gotta bring up my giant robot. Each leg motor can lift 1,300 pounds, but because of leverage and I run them at four times their rated speed, I gotta be careful. For the drive motor legs, I've got two of these motors because the mech actually balances on these legs when it drives around. When in drive mode, it will kind of seesaw over the middle legs onto either the front legs or the back legs, which have landing gear type wheels. But isn't the problem that if you run out of power, you're basically tinned food? You need one of those. Where are we going to put that, Dan? I don't know. We'll make maybe we'll out, maybe outside that space. Yeah, boat find space. Park it outside my hotel. Yes. Yeah, see how quickly it empties out. Them, shoo them back <laughs> in. No, no, shoo them back in every time they try and scoop up all the stolen yes. bicycles. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. We, that's all right. We've got, we've, got, we've got a few... Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Let me see. Let's, uh... Well, that's an interesting one. Top comment. Harry Starving Barber, do you think you could launch a podcast dedicated to religion? You've already done psychology and philosophy, so why not? One I did have thing. the idea... <laughs> Harry Starving Barber. Yes, yeah, an amazing name. <laughs> I, I, so I, I, I did have the idea, but it's also just sort of like time because I'm doing quite a bit. I, I did do the Jesus, is, is, Jesus Isn't the Socialist podcast with Carl. That went down really well. And we've got some stuff coming up with... We've with... got some stuff coming up. And also, I think we should go and check the early desert fathers of Christianity. Okay, yeah. No, not just them. I have uh, a symposium on Augustine's confessions in mind. Yes. That would so be good. We'll, we'll probably fold it quite a bit into the philosophy series um, just because, obviously, my, my work schedule is quite schizophrenic. Yeah. Zachary says, giving Callum a run for his money with that intro. Why, is, is, is Callum also particularly good at intros? I, I, I don't know. Callum's outros are fantastic of where, where it's usually just, um, if you enjoyed the show, watch again. If not, don't bother. Bye. <laughs> We, we got some nice words on symposium. Well, I, I presume they're nice words on symposium. Um, Mr. Power says, to be fair to Stelios, you hear people, I feel more than I think when I discuss anything. Yes. Yep. Um, any, any others that stand out for you there? Um, uh, oh, uh, Lord Nevar says, things are pretty bad right now, but you find chaps make it bearable for an hour and a half each day. Yes, we, we provide solace in the, in, in, in the cultural warp. Um, a couple from Brokenomics. Um, oh, so oh, Sophie's responding to me. By the way, Dan, about the video yesterday. No, we don't have Nazi amusement parks. Oh, uh, it's just that what used to be a Nazi base um, of operations in my city, they left a lot of bunkers behind. It's a museum now, and only once a year they spend two days dressing up in uniforms and doing reactments. The, the whole city, or and, and that kind of stuff. It happens. Uh, it happens this one weekend a year specifically at a historically relevant place. Well, that's that's still more than we have. Yeah. I mean, well, but we weren't ever occupied by the Nazis, so we wouldn't really have, like, unless you recreated that episode of Dad's Army, you wouldn't be able to do much. Right, no, I was thinking of Hugo Boss outfits, but... Oh, yeah. 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 But suppose how he wants to come in. Uh, Martin uh, says, uh, Dan, could you do a Brokenomics about what it mean if the gold standard could would be in, reintroduced and the transition would unfold? Well, yeah, yeah, I actually kind of mainly do that kind of thing through the interview. So 
Um, Peter St. Onge and um, Lawrence Leppard. We covered a lot of that kind of stuff. Kevin Fox has a request that I think we've actually said yeah. that we're going to cover. Oh, yeah. Is do a deep dive into the economics of dating apps. Yep, How much it that. costs you to get a woman's phone number via a dating app and meeting girls in a pub? So that would actually be a good little modeling comparison thing. Yes. Um, yes. So we'll have to fold that into there. But we've got some other stats in that that will be eyebrow raising. Yeah. And then on your bit, um, prepare me for the. Severin, yep. am I pronouncing that right? Connor is um, doing a great job talking with these feminists, but nothing will change if women uh, will be forever shielded from the consequences of their decisions. Yeah, well, that's why they're arguing to get rid of the birth control pill, because in that reintroduce. Mary's literally called it rewilding sex, as in reintroducing, <laughs> yeah, reintroducing a dangerous predator into the habitat. <laughs> You'd like her book. That's good. Um, and I, I don't know. We run out of time now. I took my earpiece. Pretty out, much, so we, yeah. We got, we got like so. We're almost done five minutes over. So well done. Oh, for okay. the Extra content. Yes. Okay. Done. So uh, well done, chaps, and, and cheerio, you lovely um, subscriber people. We like you.